when you can share your story in a way that like connects you with others and allows you to make new meaning from that story, it can spark like this kind of feminist consciousness, which is really the backbone of feminist movements. The kind of culture of silence and shame around sexual violence is what keeps us separated and what keeps us from activating for a movement and for a political movement. Welcome to the Ripples of Radical Generosity podcast by Coralis, a global community of women and non-binary people making real progress on the world's to-do list. Together, we're transforming the world to become more equitable and sustainable. Hi everyone, my name is Gabrielle Martinovich. I've been a Coralist activator for a number of years. I have really enjoyed being part of a network which values doing business differently. Today I welcome Zoe Condliff of She's a Crowd who uses crowdsourced data to make cities safe for women and gender diverse people and prevent sexual assault by closing the gender data gap. Now I'd like to hand over to you Zoe to introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. So my name is Zoe Conliffe and I'm the founder and CEO of She's a Crowd. She's a Crowd is a feminist tech startup and we use crowdsource data to make cities and spaces safer for women and gender diverse people specifically to close the gender data gap that we see whereby sexual assault and gender-based violence is severely underreported all around the world. So we currently host the largest geospatial database of sexual assault and gender-based violence with around 120,000 survivor stories. And we have an anonymous crowdsourcing platform where any survivor anywhere around the world can share their story. And we use those stories as data to make preventative change. Great. And how did you get started with your venture? So I started She's a Crowd in 2018. Um, So we're coming up to our fifth birthday, actually. That's great. Yeah, in March. I can't believe that, actually. That is wild. Whenever I say it, I'm so proud that we've been around for that long. You know, when I started, people said, you know, most startups fail in the first couple of years, you know, that type of thing. Um, Obviously, what we do, we're a social enterprise um, startup. So we do have that priority around putting the survivors at the center and making social impact, which means in some ways we do grow slower than a traditional startup might grow. Um, just because we need to move at that speed of trust and really be very sensitive and careful about, you know, how we address this issue. We're working in such an important and sensitive topic area. But I'll go back to your question. If you can imagine five years ago, early 2018, Me Too went viral on Twitter with Milano's Twitter post in late 2017. Um, So it's been also five years of me too. So I really um, kind of was very much like finger on the pulse, looking at what was going on in terms of a broader discussion around sexual assault and gender-based violence globally. I had been working in crowd mapping for about two years, but I was working in the nonprofit um, international development sector. I'd led Australia's first crowd mapping platform for street harassment at that time, which was called Free to Be. And I really believed in it. You know, it was a pretty experimental one because no one had really started using crowd mapping in that way yet. 
and it was really successful. I learned a lot about data, really, through that. I already had a background working with survivors through kind of storytelling through my arts practice, and I am a survivor of gender-based violence and sexual assault as well. But I had that kind of intersection of, I guess, that experience, that, you know, that lived experience, that professional experience. And then all I needed was a social kind of impetus, I guess, of momentum. The Me Too movement was so fascinating because, you know, millions and millions shared online. And it was almost like a validation process um, for my idea because so many people said to me, like, back in those days, you know, like women would never share those kind of things online. You know, they honestly, people believe that, you know, we've seen like this exponential change in the way that social media and online space and technology is used even in the last five years. And back then people genuinely thought like it wasn't like they didn't have that understanding of the way that our generation would become so intimate with online space and how we would use it for social change um, and all of those things. And I, I feel that I was very aware of those things just because of my experience working with young people, my, my professional background. I think I was a young person. I think I was 26 at that time as well. And so I thought now's the time I'm going to start She's a Crowd and I quit my job, made that leap and got started. I was really lucky because She Starts, which was the um, venture backed um, accelerator for women in Australia at that time, decided to support me um, to start She's a Crowd as well. Great. And we'll come back to some of that. We'll pick up on some of those elements in your story as well and dig a bit deeper there. Uh, you sort of talked about your journey as an entrepreneur and obviously She Start gave you the kickstart, the venture, back to venture. What are some other things that have um, helped amplify or lift your um, journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I was really, really fortunate on the, in those early days because I had the Foundation for Young Australians, loved my idea, and I won a prize for pitching and they basically said you should use this prize to support yourself personally, to quit your job, because I don't have, I I was young, like I didn't really have many savings. I'm not from like a a background where I would just have like, you know, money and all of that stuff to just support me (laughs) indefinitely to run it. And so I was really lucky with that. And then I was really fortunate to be supported by She Starts. And then that type of support has really continued. And it wasn't my first social venture. I had started a social enterprise previously and what I really noticed with She's a Crowd was it was like magic. Like people, the the idea resonated with people. People wanted to support me. The PR stuff came quite, it just was coming, you know, like there was just stuff that, and it made me just realize like as much as it was extremely challenging, extremely scary, I was like living in my van, you know, I didn't know how it was going to turn out and it was like really really a stressful time in a lot of ways. It was also one of those things where I could just tell that the idea had legs because there was a flow to it that I hadn't experienced before. It was less of a, I didn't feel like I was swimming upstream as much. And so that's been really, really good. And I think that I've got some incredible um, advisors and mentors. And I think that this kind of idea gets thrown around of mentors and advisors and things but who these people really are are like it's more about the relationships I think they're like you know genuinely these people are friends I can call them at any time ask them things and they have a diverse range of skill sets as well and then in the last two years we've grown our team 
um, internally. And these days, like they're everything. So I wouldn't be able to do any of this without them. Great. Yeah. Team and support is a really important thing. Um, Okay. Now we're going to dig deeper into the actual business and the actual doing. Can you share a bit about what happens to the data that people share when reporting? And I guess when we say data, we're also talking stories because you mentioned that earlier that it's through the storytelling and et cetera, which is a great idea. And we'll pick up on that as well a bit later. But yeah, can you share a bit about what happens to that data that people share? Yeah, that's right. So um, we see ourselves as kind of the translators or the bridge between survivor stories and evidence-based decision-making. Our job is to support the survivors to share their stories in a way that works for them. What we see in a lot of other kind of data collection processes, like surveys, research, is it's very draining. It's very, very traumatizing. People feel like they're just rehashing events I wanted to create an online platform that utilized consciousness raising techniques like feminist consciousness raising so that survivors could create new meaning every time that they shared their stories with us so that it was like a more therapeutic experience rather than a feeling of rehashing and then also create ways where they could understand that they were not alone, um, which is a really important part of kind of shedding the shame, realizing that this is systemic and not necessarily an individual thing that, you know, it's your fault. And kind of starting to join the dots and notice, yeah, the systemic ways that this issue is playing out so that you can become political or develop hope around um, the situation, all those types of things. So that was really important first and foremost. And then when survivors share their story through our platform, goes into a, effectively, it's a online kind of database that's protected with a lot of um, data security infrastructure our team can access it. Well, certain members from our data team can access it and they can then um, manually recode or de-identify it. So that's just removing names, um, things like that. And then once they've done that, it goes through to like a second bucket and that is connected live to our data insights dashboard which is what our customers access at this point so customers like government decision makers um, policy makers researchers then can use those insights to make change in that area of gender-based violence prevention great and so with regard to some of those decision makers some of your customers like the government etc how do they use it do they put it into research? Do they put it in a report? Do they, you know, engage with any of the survivors on a, on a more personal level? How does it work? Yeah, so they they use it in a variety of ways. So a lot of the time what's happened is there's not already gender lens on most policy. We've found that they need it, like, because we're the, a very unique data set. They don't actually have access to data like this anywhere else. They use it to apply like a gender lens to policy. So, for example, we were able to ensure that um, public transport policy for the first time ever took gender safety into account rather than just personal safety because we know that the way that people experience public space and public transport is gendered and 
Um, there's not a lot of nuances in the way that they currently collect data. Like the data is so aggregated, they don't even um, collect for gender. So we're able to do things like that. And then sometimes it has a very, very kind of practical kind of application too. Like we've assisted in the designing of safer bike cages um, using our data on cycling. We've assisted, um, we're working at the moment actually on rideshare and the rideshare industry. Um, and improving that as well as different forms of I guess uh, research so yeah it kind of has a lot of applications and we're going to be seeing more of that because what we've noticed is due to that higher level policy change there's stronger and stronger mandates around um, gender lens policy so we've seen an increase in demand as the world is changing as well. That gender lens is interesting. So let's let's look at that a bit more because obviously that is key to all of it as well. Um, the marketing on your website and social channels is intentionally very inclusive and diverse. So can you tell us a little bit about that decision and where uh, whether there was any process or learning involved to get there? Yeah, always we we came from the approach of gender equity and like just social equity in general which is the idea that rather than like equality, which is more around like treating everyone the same, you know, really understanding the intersection of privileges and oppressions that various people face and really never wanting to make any survivor feel like this isn't a place for them. But sometimes that means going an extra mile to speak, to really name things and really make sure people feel comfortable. Like it's not enough to do the bare minimum, sometimes you really have to like name it and put it out there and say, this is for you as well, because there are groups who are going to feel like the world isn't for them. And then pro- probably if you don't actually go out there and try to, you know, speak specifically to those people, they might end up feeling excluded, even if that wasn't your intention. And I think that, you know, we always are learning, always, always learning. And so we've done a lot of different things. I think we've got a very diverse range of lived experience in our team and then um, specifically brought consultants in when necessary to advise on stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just use the research to inform it. So, you know, as we've had all these conversations around different gender identities in the last five years, always staying up to date with like the ways that, you know, people, the community and the research, you know, to ensure that we're like being as inclusive as possible throughout that. And yeah. And then internally we have our diversity, inclusion and belonging um, policy and plan as well, which helps with us being proactive as a company in terms of who we bring in and what type of projects we do. That's great. And what's the current um, industry space like for crowd mapping tools? Because that's obviously a key part of, of what you do, such as yours. It's used in a lot of different ways. I think local councils use crowd mapping um, to collect feedback from their constituents or, yeah, from people in living in their local area. There's been crowd mapping for, like, cycle safety um, there's been crowd mapping for a variety of different kind of applications. And what I did notice though, is in terms of like gender based violence, sexual assault, crowd mapping, most crowd mapping projects that would pop up from time to time 
around that would be temporary. And so it would be like a campaign-based activity. So we wanted to create something that was always available and that was consistently collecting data. And um, some of those campaigns, because you talked earlier about how some of the data feeds into things like public space and how you plan public space, would that be such a campaign, one of those short-term campaigns? Exactly. Yeah. So they might be working on um, something specific around maybe a hotspot in a particular area, train station, or yeah, a specific project. And we can come on and either provide data reports for that particular location. We have in the past run campaigns specifically to collect more data around particular um, issues, or we, we do some kind of level of consulting sometimes too. Um, but we're trying to move towards a more kind of scalable model. So we've developed or we're in the process of developing gender safety scorecards. So you can get a gender safety score for a particular location. And that will be like automatically generated um, through the algorithm that we develop for that project. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. And I can see a lot of application there across a, num- a number of industries with that. Mm. So I think that's a great um, extension. And I guess I want to come back to the storytelling because sexual assault is such a complicated field. And you said earlier, you know, there's trauma and, and there's lots of sensitivities around that kind of data. So why storytelling and what difference do you think it makes? Like why storytelling as opposed to like another way of making social change? Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, with um, sexual assault and gender-based violence specifically, there's something that happens where often like women, gender diverse people, we will we will share these stories among ourselves. We all know that this happens. We talk to each other. We've been telling stories forever. We just, that's what we do. But stories aren't taken seriously by men most of the time. And they are still not taken seriously. Like our experiences are not taken seriously by the criminal justice system. Survivor stories continue to be dismissed or not believed or you get blamed. You know, all those things do happen and they continue to happen. Um, I have been working on my PhD looking at um, survivor experiences of justice um, regarding experiences of sexual violence and it's really bad and it continues to happen and this is not like a historical problem it's very much a current problem but at the same time like the way that we share stories I think has a lot of potential and a lot of power because if we can share stories in a way that's like safe in a way in and, and finally be believed or a lot of survivors seek like validation and seek um, some sort of kind of experience where they can connect with someone else who has a similar kind of experience um that's kind of like the me too effect that can really really help in a survivor's journey of going from feeling alone ashamed fearful um or that it was not, you know, that it was invalid for whatever reason. It wasn't bad enough, you know, it was my own fault, whatever it is. Um, and then when you can share your story in a way that like connects you with others and allows you to make new meaning from that story, it can spark like this kind of feminist consciousness, which is really the backbone of feminist movements because yeah. 
the kind of culture of silence and shame around sexual violence is what keeps us separated and what keeps us from activating for a movement and for a political movement. When survivors realise that their story is not particularly unique, it's actually systemic, they become angry and they become politically motivated. So I have a theory that I'm actually uh, arguing for my PhD around feminist consciousness online and the way that it's created. And I've basically based She's a Crowd off of that theory to build the movement, um, to empower survivors individually, and to create the systemic change um, that I think we need to apply gender lens to decision-making. Great. And I do I do think those stories are quite telling that that difference and and still not being heard is quite a uh, still quite prevalent today, unfortunately. So it, yeah. it is still about power in the head. Yeah. If we just move on to you becoming a Coralist venture, you've been welcomed into the community. Can you share a bit about how that's going so far? Yeah, it's been really, really great to be a part of the community. I've seen it from afar for a number of years. And yeah, we just got to a point where I think we thought this is the right time. Obviously, we were very, very excited to be chosen um, as a venture. I think that the culture of Coralus is quite unique. The way that we're communicated with, the way that Coralus kind of creates a community is really cool and unique. And I've been enjoying that. Once again, like think that those relationships are really important. Being able to actually like build relationships rather than like just networks, I think mm. is really important. Um, so I've really enjoyed like having um, the mentoring because I think that I've actually, I was actually pleasantly surprised because there's so many programs which it's like, and you get a mentor and I'm like, great, like just what I need, another mentor. <laughs> like, but I actually really connected with my mentor and I'm really looking forward to seeing her again later this week. I would love to see everyone in person. I think that that would be really great. I think it's obviously been a tough few years with all that online stuff. So looking forward to more opportunities to do things um, in person as well. Yeah. And I get I get your point because all throughout our conversation so far, you've talked about relationships being really important, connection, and, and it's very, it makes me aware that it is very much part of your business model as well. And it makes a lot yeah. of sense in this current time and, and where we're at. I guess now I'd really love to know um, what's next for She's a Crowd. Like you mentioned that gender safety um, scorecard, which I think is fantastic. And I think that would be really useful for a lot of industries. What else is next? We're really entering a new era um, with She's a Crowd. We've focused the last four or five years on really perfecting or, well, I don't really know about perfecting, but really focusing on the survivor experience and the storytelling and, you know, really speaking to the survivor and and creating that community, um, making sure that's a good experience. And now what we're turning our focus towards while still putting the survivor at the centre is how we deliver the data insights in a way that is financially sustainable, um, will grow our social impact um, and will deliver really strong um, data insights in a kind of a scalable way. And so we've just done a big kind of process of doing a big market 
and competitor analysis and a lot of customer research and even um, survivor user research um, into how they want us to use our data. And um, we're creating a new customer facing brand. And I know that you mentioned earlier, like about our brand, it's very inclusive, but you'll notice it's very survivor centric. And so we're creating a kind of an aligned, but kind of separate brand that speaks more to the data, the data insights, the data products and the customer. And alongside that, we've created a kind of a new suite of products, which includes the gender safety safety scorecard approach, um, our data insights dashboard, which we already have launched in the market, as well as APIs around integrating our raw data into other systems, um, as well as a chatbot specifically for individual survivor. It's a mental health chatbot really um, for, yeah, that kind of therapeutic storytelling that we were talking about earlier as well. So there's a few different kind of products coming through at the moment. Um, and those are all geared towards actually delivering on our promise to survivors, which is that their stories will be used for social change and prevention. Great. That, that sounds like a lot of meaty things to get involved in. Um, so obviously, as a Coral Venture, we always ask, you know, do you have an ask for listeners in the community? Like, what would you like from any in terms of community support from Coralist? Well, where we're at at the moment is like our two big things for this year are that we're going to be raising some more capital and also obviously improving our suite of data products and piloting a lot of them. So we're really looking for um, more organizations, whether they are government or research or universities or like local government and NGOs who might be interested in improving gender equality or might be interested in our data in any way. Um, and then also introductions to impact investors or any networks that really you think might be able to help us out in this kind of phase of our journey. Great. Well, that was really interesting for me. And and I love I love the storytelling element. I, I do believe that yeah. it's a power image. And I, I love the fact that you're not just doing traditional data and numbers because the personal gets lost in the numbers. So great to have you as part of the Coralist community. And I'm hoping we get to hear lots more from you this year and how it's all going. And thank you for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Gabrielle. Lovely to speak to you as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ripples of Radical Generosity podcast. Let us know what you thought of the episode and share this podcast with your friends. We invite you to join a global community of radically generous women and non-binary folks at www.coralis.world.